Morning, everybody. Before we start, can I get anything for anybody? A cup of tea, a blanket, <laughs> ambulance. <laughs> that was quite uh, quite interesting. Preaching with pyramids running in with trolleys and and all that sort of stuff. But she's fine. She was um, she's got a virus and she's under antibiotics and so on and she's basically passed out. But she's fine. We celebrate Christmas Day on the 25th of December every year. We celebrate the um, incredible, wonderful crucifixion and then the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ about mid-April every year. But can anybody tell me, when was or is Ascension Day this year? Anybody know? Hmm, three days ago. Now, come on, be really honest. I want to see how you compare to the 8 o'clock service. Put your hands up if you actually really did know that on Thursday was Ascension Day. So that's probably less than half. So here's the question. Is it because it's relatively unimportant that it kind of slips us by? And it really does slip us by. Or is it because we have forgotten what it really means and how important it really is to our Christian faith and to our belief and to our encouragement. And I choose to believe it's, it's the latter. I want to focus in on the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read you an early creedal hymn. So in the New Testament you find these hymns, I assume they were sung, they're poetic in form, but they're short statements, they're creeds, they're statements of the Christian faith. You find them all over the place. And I want to read you the one which is in 1 Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy 3.16. And it reads as follows. Most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Manifest in the, in the flesh. God incarnated in human nature. It is the most astounding and wonderful thing. God the Son, the glorious creator of all things, comes and doesn't just become a man, doesn't just sort of take on human flesh, but actually is born first into humanity. And that's the miracle of Christmas, and we celebrate that every year. Then it says, justified in the Spirit. So we know that from the moment Jesus started his public ministry for three and a half years, he worked incredible, wonderful miracles. You know, miracles that go far beyond the comprehension of human beings. And in that, his divinity is being authenticated. Behold your God. Behold your creator and healer. And of course, the, 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 the most outstanding miracle of all was when he rises from the tomb. He rises, transformed, glorified in body, but still very much flesh. Rises and says, see? I have conquered death. Here I am. And we celebrate that on Resurrection Sunday. Then it says, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Well, from the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, just before he came, the angels played a role. Remember they said, the Messiah is coming. He's gonna, you know, you're going to give birth to Mary and Elizabeth, you know. And all these things are going to be tied together. And then as he's born in the stable, this angelic throng come along and they say, there he is. 
And throughout his ministry, right at the beginning when he's tempted in the wilderness, he's tested, then the angels come to sustain him. Right the way through to the Garden of Gethsemane, the angels come to sustain him. Right through until the ascension itself, these angels are playing a role, attesting and saying, we witness to this glorious fact. Here is your God. And the disciples were witnesses. And they went around preaching and said, what our eyes have seen, what our hands have touched, this we affirm to you. This we validate before you. And they preached the gospel across their known world. Angels and men testifying. And people believing in that testimony. And coming to saving faith. But then the third one, taken up in glory. That's the ascension miracle. So we have the miracle and the mystery of the incarnation of the resurrection and the ascension, they are all three vitally important. We understand something of the incarnation, although we can't fully grasp it intellectually. We understand something of the resurrection, although we cannot grasp it fully intellectually. We also need to embrace as much as we can the ascension, because it's part of this wonderful thing of God coming among us. Let me take you to the Acts account just to give you how they record it. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 says this. Now, now Jesus had just been speaking to his disciples. For 40 days he had been appearing to them. He wasn't with them constantly for 40 days. He rises from the grave and over a period of 40 days he appears to them. And by the way he seems to appear out of nowhere. He kind of just steps into a room and there he is. And he teaches them fundamental truths about his kingdom. He's just told them that they are going to be filled with power from on high. That they were going to be his witnesses and going to all the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And in Luke's gospel he adds that as Jesus was ascending, he was stretching out his hands and blessing them. As he disappeared from their sight. And it goes on. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly two men in white clothed, uh, white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This Jesus whom his disciples have touched in his resurrected body, felt, interacted with, seen him eating. He said, you know, give me some fish. And they had actually seen that although he was transformed and different, he was very much physical. This Jesus, they witness ascending bodily into heaven. It's not like he just, in a spiritual form, disappears. He ascends bodily. There is no corpse on the ground. And they've never found a tomb and never will, despite all the wacky books that get written every ten years about Jesus' tomb. Because there is nobody. And there never has been. He ascends in bodily form into heaven. I want you to try and see the scene just to make it vivid for you. Jesus is in all probability sitting with his disciples because a teacher would normally sit when he taught. And he's been teaching them quite extensively. And they probably scattered around him. We know there must be at least 11 of them. There might have been more, but we told that they were the disciples. There were 11 at that time. And he's teaching about these wonderful things. And as he finishes teaching them, he reaches out his hands to bless them. I can see him standing and just stretching out his hands to bless his seated disciples. And as he's doing this, 
a cloud of glory, shining cloud, roiling, comes and engulfs him until he's totally covered in it and it starts to rise up into the heavens. I can see their eyes must have been like nachapis, no? They must have been sitting there going, as this cloud of glory goes up and then suddenly it just implodes upon itself and it's gone. And there's nothing there. There's nothing on the ground. He hasn't disappeared behind a rock. He's gone. He's ascended in bodily form into heaven. Now, the disciples would have known about the glory cloud of God because they'd heard about that many times in their tradition. Uh, One of the most dramatic occasions, Moses goes up the Mount of God, Mount Sinai, and he receives the Ten Commandments and the cloud of glory descends upon that mountain and the people are awestruck. They're not even going to approach that mountain for God is shining forth his glory from there. Three of these disciples have actually seen it with their own eyes. Three of them were chosen by Jesus, went up Mount Hermon with him. And what they saw, they must have confounded them. For again, that glory cloud, that Shekinah cloud descends upon the top of the mountain. And stepping out of it is that same Moses. Stepping out of it is Elijah, the great prophet. And they interact with Jesus and they prepare him for his departure. That's what it says. They prepared him for his departure from the earth. And again, they were, they were so dumbfounded, they started to say some silly things. You know, can we build a quick house for you guys? You know, they, they were confused and bamboozled because they had seen this wonderful, amazing thing. So here again, they see this glory cloud. And they see Jesus, figuratively, stepping through it into heaven. And he's gone. Now, where did he go? Heaven, right? But but where and what is heaven? Well, in 1970, a man named Finnis Dakes decided that he would set forth the doctrine of, of heaven. Now, there's a thing called the Dakes Annotated Reference Bible, which is an incredible work, by the way. I mean, pre-computer times, this man listed every single thing in Scripture. I mean, boy, did he list everything. You will find how many times this happened and how many times somebody said whatever word and so on. But his theology, unfortunately, was, let me be charitable, somewhat off. But wacky, actually, in many areas. One of his wacky areas was he said heaven was a planet. But it was on the other side of the sun. So it was always in the same side kind of orbit as we were, so we never saw it. Because as the earth was going around the sun, so heaven was going around in a sort of a synchronous fashion. Well, he died in 1987. And just three years later, they launched the space probe Ulysses to orbit the sun and to photograph. No planet heaven. Sorry. Heaven is not a physical place. It's not a place we can reach with astronauts. Or travel to. It's not a place peopled with physical three-dimensional things. There's something about it which is far, far, far beyond our feeble attempts to try and picture it in terms of our little world and our physicality. 
The only way that I can come near to conceptualizing heaven is to think of it in terms of additional dimensions. So we have three dimensions of space here. We have height and breadth and length, like a chair. And we have a dimension of time. And we see time as a, like a linear pathway. So with our three-dimensional space, we travel along this timeline. Although it appears now that time isn't actually linear. So we got that wrong, wrong as well. We know that around us, we are living in a spiritual dimension as well. Now the Bible talks about it, but we experience it. We know when we're in worship, when we're praying, when we see things happening, when we hear the voice of God, when, when all these spiritual things are happening, we're aware that this isn't physical. We know we can't box it, but we know it's real. And we interact with it. This is the spiritual realm, additional dimensions. But beyond that, beyond even those dimensions, is the realm of heaven, the abode of God. Paul writes about himself, although very humbly he says, I know a man, but I think we all know who the man was. He says, I know a man who was taken up into the third heaven. And the Hebrew understanding was that you had first heaven, which was the three dimensions of the space-time universe, like the blue heavens. And then beyond that was the spiritual dimension. And beyond that was the third heaven. It's basically saying the same thing. And he spoke about this third heaven. Now, interestingly, the science of our day is no longer Newtonian science. For about the last 50 years, at least, it's been, it has been Einstein and Planck's creation called quantum physics or quantum mechanics. And it operates on totally different laws and totally different principles. And so a lot of the leading-edge, cutting-edge scientists of our day are focusing on, on the area of quantum physics because that's what's taking us into this new world of ours. And in terms of quantum physics, there is a construct called string theory, which is their theoretical attempt to try and reconcile Einstein's relativity with the principles of quantum mechanics. They believe that they can reconcile those two. They can have this theory of everything that will explain the whole universe, both the seen and the unseen. Now, here's the interesting bit. They have found that for their model to be mathematically consistent, and to be able to hold in all circumstances, it has to have different dimensions. It has to have additional dimensions. And they've calculated that it needs about 10 to 26 additional dimensions for string theory to work. Now, isn't that interesting? The cutting-edge scientists of our day are saying, don't be surprised that there are other dimensions. And the Christian, the biblical Christian, has said, you're not telling us anything new. We've known that for a long time. Of course, there are other dimensions. All right, from the speculative back to the reality of Scripture. Ephesians 4.10 says this. He who descended, that's Jesus coming from heaven to earth in the incarnation. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Scriptures have been telling us that all along. The Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate of human flesh, ascends back into the heavenly realm, beyond the dimensions of space and time, beyond what we would call the spiritual. 
in a Shekinah cloud of glory, he steps out of this realm and he steps into the heavenly realm. And the disciples witnessed it. At least 11 disciples witnessed it. And at least two angels witnessed it because they appeared straight away and said, why are you so surprised? Can't you understand this? I want to consider the significance of the ascension. Why is it so important? Well, firstly, the fact that Jesus ascended bodily into the heavenly realm means that he is alive, he is not dead. I repeat, there is no tomb with a body in it. There's no sarcophagus with a body in it or bones. There was no body lying on the ground when the cloud disappeared. He is risen and he is ascended. That means that we worship a living God, not the memory of a dead deity or a guru figure or a prophetic voice. He is alive in a realm beyond our senses, in a realm beyond the dimensions of space and time and even the spiritual, but real and alive. That's the first implication of the ascension. Secondly, we have an intercessor at the very center of all creation. Right there, the scripture talks about the throne of God, that, that he is seated on the throne of God, the center. That's what the throne symbolizes, the center of all creation, heavenly, earthly, known and unknown, seen and unseen, all realms. Sits so Jesus saying, Father, my kids, I intercede for them. Holy Spirit, guide them, guard them, lead them in the ways of righteousness. Now, what a wonderful truth that is. That's an implication of the ascension. Thirdly, because he ascended back to the throne of glory, he has sent the Holy Spirit into the world. Do you know, when Jesus walked this earth as a man, if you wanted to find God, you had to go to a place smaller than the Kruger National Park, Israel. And then you would find him somewhere there, around the Lake of Galilee or whatever. But because he has ascended, he has sent and loosed into the world the person of the Holy Spirit, who can touch every living person on this planet, past, present, and future. That everyone has an opportunity to say, Oh God, have mercy upon me. Help me to relate to you. Would that have happened without the ascension? No, Jesus said so, because I go to the Father. He actually said to them, don't be upset. I'm going to the Father, and because I'm going, I will ask the Father, and he will send you another like myself, the comfort of the blessed Holy Spirit. And he will take all the things that I've taught you and make them real to you. And he will empower you to be my disciples. And he will guide you and protect you and walk with you on this earthly life. But this morning, I want to try and take you one step deeper. It's not that these three wonderful aspects are not profound enough. But I want to take you to what I believe is at the very heart of the ascension. I just want to pray. Holy Spirit, I don't have an understanding or an intellect sufficient to really grasp these things. But I can see them set forth in your word. And I certainly don't have words which can adequately convey. But you can take the truth of your word. 
And you can make it come alive. And even if we cannot intellectually understand all of it, or even part of it, we can know it's true. And you can apply that deep into our very spirits and help us to live accordingly. Please won't you do that. Please be graceful and merciful to us and to me this morning. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ provides the extraordinary evidence that glorified humanity has been elevated into the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus, has been past tense. Glorified humanity. Jesus in his humanity ascends into the Godhead, at the very center of heaven. Glorified humanity has been elevated elevated beyond the physical, beyond the spiritual, into the very center of all things. No wonder Paul writes, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Perfected humanity in Jesus, perfected humanity, has now become a part of the eternal Godhead. Now, I know that there's a theological doctrine called the immutability of God. God does not change. But we've missed something. Because in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, something in the Godhead changed. Before, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were purely of spiritual essence. Purely unincorporal in terms of our humanity. But after the ascension... The Godhead consists of the Father, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, and the God-Man, Jesus. Fully God, but fully human. Glorified humanity has been incorporated into the eternal nature of God. I can't get that. I can't wrap my mind around that. But I don't understand the Trinity, do you? After tea, afterwards, somebody come and explain the Trinity to me because how God can be three yet one, I can theorize about it, I can't understand it. Not really. But it's declared. It is a profound truth which has some major implications for us as Christians. Profound conclusion it leads me to. Whether I comprehend it fully or not, it leads me to a conclusion. And the conclusion affects the way I live. And the conclusion is that all who are in Christ Jesus, those glorious words that we don't understand, being in Christ Jesus, all who are in Christ Jesus, born again of his spirit, are already elevated into the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.3, Paul writes, you have died, past tense, in your, in your baptism, in your surrender of your old self and your old nature, you have died. And your life is hid, present tense, with Christ in God. Now. And that means you. That means if you are born again of the Holy Spirit, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, come alive through His Spirit, then the very essence of your life has shifted its polarity from being centered here to being centered in a realm that transcends even the spiritual. 
Your true life, your core essence and existence is no longer a thing of this earth. Before it was a thing of this world, it is no longer centered in this world. This earth is no longer your primary domicile. That's why Paul says in places like Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is, present tense, in heaven. So a central truth embedded in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is that in Jesus Christ, humanity is elevated to the heavenly realm. So in Jesus, you and I are already seated in high heavenly places. The center of gravity of our lives has shifted from here to there, from the earth to heaven, from the physical to the heavenly realm. It's moved If we want to look to where the essence of our life is, it isn't here. It's there. Now, how should this astounding truth affect how we should regard life here on earth? It's not that life here is unreal. You know, the Matrix series were three nice movies, but really a bunch of baloney, really. It's not always, it's not all smoke and mirrors. Life on earth is real. We do live in a space-time continuum. And it's not that it's unimportant. Of course it's important. What we say and do here is really important. But it's of secondary importance, guys. It's of limited, and it is definitely of temporary worth. Therefore, we may not, we must not, allow our current state, our current circumstances to overcome or overwrite or overwhelm our true identity and our true value and our true destiny. If we do that, then we are to be pitied. We are myopic, short-sighted. For our true identity, our true worth, our true destiny does not reside in here. It resides in Christ and Christ is seated now. In the center of all things. Now. The implications of the ascension. Must surely give us perspective on our life here. Surely. If we, if we consider this bigger picture. Even if we don't understand it enough. We can still get perspective on the things that face us. And we really should. Life on earth is not an end in itself. It's a means. It is not an end in itself. How sad to have a belief which says, I live for 20 years, 40 years, 70 years, 100 years, and then, like a candle in the wind, it's blown out and it's done. How sad. For the truth is that life continues. This life is not the end. It's a means towards something far more wonderful and far greater. So, again, I say, and you've heard this from me a thousand times today, a thousand and one, here we go again. Uh, Hopefully I'll say it another thousand times before I die. We are here in order that we may come to know Jesus and be found in him. Our identity in him. Our destiny in him. We have come to this planet so that we may live a life which enables us to grow into the template of who he is. 
to grow to be like him. To be transformed by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. So that we can start to fulfill the glorious pattern of what we intended to be. And we are on this planet so we can help other people to do likewise. To come to know him and to be in him and to become like him. We have to have that perspective if we are to stay true to reality and the truth of Scripture. In this world, we grow into the template, the pattern that Jesus, the pattern son, has already created. And that pattern is in heaven, in himself. Now, in the light of all this, Paul writes in places like, in other places as well, Colossians 3.2. Therefore, he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Can you understand that, right? If everything I'm telling you this morning is true, then really, it's not that life's unimportant, but this is not to be our focus. We ought to set our vision and our minds and our hearts on the things that are above, because that's where the reality is. The highest, deepest depth of our reality. Okay. I want to apply these wonderful truths to some of the things that we contend with. And I'm going to end my sermon with these. I'm not going to give comprehensive commentary on these. I want to read out to you three scriptures addressing three of our most common things that we face in this world. And I want you to hear the power and the impact of the scriptures themselves without being dulled with human intellect. Without, being, uh, without the lily being glossed by any feeble attempts to explain. Listen carefully rather to what the scriptures say. Take things like personal sickness, affliction, difficulties, and want. Hey man, when people say to me, oh this life is just so wonderful, I, I wonder if we're on the same planet sometimes. Because this life's hard. And we have many things to contend with. And there are times of great want and there are times of great difficulty and affliction. And there are times of illness and, and things that we, that we have to battle with. We lose loved ones. Oh, wow. As I grow older, I realize that the older I get, the more I lose. You know, life starts to consist of losing a lot of stuff, right? Well, that's the way it is. How do we deal with that? Listen and in listening in the light of all the things I've said this morning, listen to the word of God. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, and then verses 35 to 39. I think we heard some of these scriptures two or three weeks ago. It reads, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is. So that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. Who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And be found in Him, our Lord. Now apply this truth to the loss of things like career or possession or status. And it happens to a lot of us. We lose our jobs. We don't have status in the world anymore. So, oh, woe is me. It happens to us retired dudes. You know, so, I'm retired. What's my purpose? People used to reserve a parking bay for me. <laughs> and now I park across the road. And, and, you know, we go through these things. We lose our sense of worth and identity. Ah, oh, get real. Listen to what the scripture says about that. Philippians 3 verse 7 to the beginning of verse 9. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things, and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Finally, Consider the self-damage that occurs to us in this world. Oh, man. You know, from an early age, often, often parents try and do such a good job and they do such a miserable job. They, they tell their, parents, their, their kids, look, actually, you're rubbish, you know, just like your dad. You're going to turn out rubbish. It happens all the time. Or, or people go through divorces. Divorces are so often such ugly things. And the one partner just basically tries to make the other one believe that they are rubbish. And then gets the compliment thrown back. It's horrible. And so we start to lose a sense of, of our, our worth and our value and our, our self-image through our failures or the failures of others to actually deal with us according to who we really are. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 7. He also raised us up with, G, with him, that's Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavens, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You want self-image? Read the scripture a few hundred times and you can't miss it, who you actually are. I want to read it again and put you instead of the word us. He also raised you up with him and seated you with him in the heavens. In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness to you in Christ Jesus. Now, in the light of all that, maybe we can understand what Paul was really meaning when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 16 to 18. He wrote, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. What words? I want to repeat that. An absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
Now, there are so many other aspects of the ascension to deal with, and I can't deal with them this morning. But I want to give you one final significance to close with. When Jesus ascended bodily back into heaven, he inaugurated, he started a new age for for this world that has never been seen before. You know, before, in Old Testament times, only certain people were specially elect to be able to interact with God and to find an eternity in his presence. But from the moment that Jesus lived, died, resurrected from the death and ascended to heaven, all who will repent, who will believe and confess that Jesus is Savior and Lord and cry out for the rebirth of their inner being, their spirit, all may come into Christ Jesus. Be assured of our position in Christ. Be assured that the focus of our lives has shifted, shifted, and now resides at the center of all eternity now. It's a new age when it comes to that. And it's an age which will only come to its end when Jesus returns again in bodily form with the clouds of glory to judge the living and the dead. To deal with finally death and sin forever and to create a new heaven earth, the eternal abode of himself as God with his people. And so it's totally appropriate that the Acts account should end with the words, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. But until he comes again, we are already in him. Glory. Amen.